So here's the irony. The Gentiles weren't even looking for salvation. They just find it and they take it. But here's an Israel in hot pursuit of salvation every hour, every day, every month, every year. And they never find it because they're doing it their way instead of God's way. And they stumble right over the Messiah. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in the national section of our study of the Book of Romans, and this consists of chapters 9, 10, and 11. So far in chapter 9, we have seen the Apostle Paul make a case for Israel being the chosen nation of God who ultimately rejected the Messiah. As we pick up today in verse 27, the Apostle now introduces the words of the prophet Isaiah, who also addresses Israel's unfaithfulness, and we see that although God promised to Abraham that he would be the progenitor of a great and blessed nation, only a handful of those sons of Israel would truly believe in Messiah. But he speaks of the sand on the seashore. So shall your descendants be. And so Abraham, you're going to have a lot of kids. And somebody will be able to say Abraham was my great, 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 however many great it was grandfather because they are Jewish people. But out of all the stars in the heaven and out of all the sand on the seashore, only a remnant is going to be saved. Only a handful is going to believe in Messiah. And so he deals with the first coming of Messiah and the unbelief of Israel, just like Hosea the prophet does. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. And notice how he introduces the quote. He says, Isaiah cries out. And there's a lot of Greek words he could have selected for preaching or crying out. But he uses a very emotional word because his prophet's heart is broken when he looks at the Hebrew people who are like the sand of the seashore and he sees that only a handful of sand will be saved, his heart is broken. And so he says in verse 10, uh, from Isaiah 10 and verse 28, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And so Isaiah saw the judgment that was coming and the people needed to heed his warning. Verse 28 just as foretold by Isaiah, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Just as out of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, so will be the judgment on the Jewish people. And it came. It came through the Assyrians and it came in 70 AD. Just like the prophet had said, just like the Lord Jesus had said. It was terrible. When Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, only a remnant was saved, specifically Lot and his two daughters. And by the way, if you're wondering how God feels about the sin of homosexuality, just read Genesis 19. I don't care what the president of World Vision came out and said this week, saying, well, now we're going to hire homosexual married people. And he compares it to baptism. He said, well, you know, there are Christians who differ on baptism. You know, some do it by immersion and some do it by sprinkling. And there are Christians who differ on this issue. And if there's a homosexual couple that's living in fidelity, you know, we're going to hire them on our staff. Now, I'm glad he changed his mind after the outrage and the threat of millions of dollars of loss, but it tells me where he is. 
God says here through his prophet, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is saving a remnant. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, you could translate it. The Lord of Sabaoth will save a remnant. But he's going to do far more than a remnant when we come to Romans 11 at the second coming of the Christ. So here's the point, and I don't want you to miss it. When Calvin looked around at the unbelief in his day, when Augustine looked at the unbelief of the Jews in his day, when the folks in Paul's day saw the unbelief of the Jewish people, they should not have concluded this must mean that the Jewish people are no longer God's select nation. Because both Hosea and Isaiah prophesied that when the Christ came the first time, that the people of Israel would be in unbelief. So it didn't take God by surprise. God didn't make a bad decision. God didn't make a mistake when he chose them out of all the nations of the world. Now, there's the unbelief of Israel prophesied. Secondly, there's the unbelief of Israel explained. Look now, if you will, at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness attained righteousness? even the righteousness which is by faith. So Paul now brings this chapter on choosing Israel out of all the nations to a conclusion by really asking a question. Now, in light of all that he has taught us, if God really has elected the nation of Israel, then why are so many of them in unbelief? God foretold it would happen, but why did it happen? Why do we have this topsy-turvy situation where the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the last people in the world you would expect to come to faith, they believe in Jesus, but the majority of the Jews reject him? Well, notice what he says. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Now understand how the term Gentile is used in the Bible. It is used in two ways. It is used ethnically to describe someone who is not a physical descendant of Abraham, but it's also used spiritually of a hardcore pagan. Understand in the first century, most Gentiles were pagans. They were idolaters. They had rejected monotheism and became polytheistic. Man doesn't start with the belief of poly many gods. He starts with the belief that there's one God. God has revealed himself that there's one true God in creation and in conscience. And as we studied in Romans 1, when a man suppresses that truth, God gives him over and he worships created things rather than the creator. And so a Gentile in the first century was a hardcore pagan. There were some bright exceptions here and there, but most of them were in unbelief. That's why Jesus could say in the Sermon on the Mount, don't pray like the Gentiles. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do. Some translations interpret the word ethne Gentile and they say, as the pagans do or as the idolaters do. Don't pray like them. And so here's the point. The last people in the world you would expect to come to faith in Jesus Christ were Gentiles. The first people you would expect to receive him were Jews. Well, what was the problem? The problem was is that the Jews sought righteousness the wrong way. And so Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 21, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you do. But Israel, verse 31, notice, pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that righteousness. What were they doing? They were trying to get right with God by a law of righteousness, or you could paraphrase it, by good deeds. 
And God has already said, no, you cannot save and redeem yourself because the penalty for sin is death. If you commit a crime worthy of death, it doesn't matter how many good things you offer the court. If your crime deserves death, it doesn't matter how many good things you offer God because our sin deserves death. It doesn't matter who we are. He has already said in Romans 3, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the more quoted verses in the Bible, but without the preface. Romans 3.23 is introduced with the phrase, for there is no distinction. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, an African, an Asian, a European. It doesn't matter if you're moral or immoral, religious or irreligious. There's no distinction. All of us have sinned, and those two words, have sinned, is one word in Greek, and it was used in the first century of someone who had veered from a known path or someone with a bow and arrow shooting at a target who had missed the bullseye. And God uses the word morally in the New Testament to show that we have missed the bullseye, we have fallen short of the glory of God. Who is the glory of God? Jesus Christ. He is the standard of righteousness. For to see him is to see the Father and next to him, we miss that mark of righteousness. We fall short of that righteousness. And so the Jews pursued a righteousness through the law. And they thought that somehow they could get righteous by the things they did. And they didn't come clean with God. And it's true with any problem you face. Deny the problem, nothing can be done about it. Admit the problem and there is once the possibility for a solution. And so they did not in their religiosity want to admit that they had a problem. Whereas the tax gatherers and the prostitutes, you didn't have to convince them of it. If I might illustrate it, if everyone on their seats this morning stood on the bottom part of their chair and on the count of three, I said, everyone jump to this front platform. It would be a total impossibility and you'd be foolish to even try. Now, the people in the front rows might get closer than the people up there in the nosebleed seats, but it would be impossible for anyone to come to this platform. And so it is with Israel. They did not see the impossibility of trying to get right with God by the things they achieved. Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. What was the problem? They chose their way rather than God's way. And some of you here today, I've tried to convince you that your way won't make it, but you don't listen to me. But your argument is not with me. Your argument was with God Almighty. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. God will say by his prophet that my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. James will say in James 2.10, if you kept the whole law and you just broke one commandment, it's as if you broke them all. That's how holy God is. If you take a rock and you throw it through the window, you don't say, well, part of the window is broken. You say, no, the window is broken. And if you've obeyed all the laws and broken only a few, it's like you've disobeyed them all, for that is how holy God is. And so man cannot pursue a righteousness by the things he does. Paul will say to the church at Galatia, for if righteousness could be attained or gained through the law, then Christ's death was meaningless. He died for nothing. So quoting Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28, look at verse 33. 
Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Isaiah 8.14. Now what does that mean? It means that not everyone is going to embrace Jesus as Lord. Some people stumble over the cornerstone because they are offended by the claims that the Bible makes. When you say from Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, they will say you are narrow-minded and unloving. When you tell people that they can only be saved through Jesus and that every other road leads to hell, they get mad at you. But please understand, they are ultimately not getting mad at you. They are getting mad at God because their, their point of contention is not with you. It is with the Bible. It is with the words of Jesus. For he said, no man comes to the Father but through me. And so they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Why? Because Jesus Christ to some, as the prophet says, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, we've seen in Romans 1 or 2 that if a person responds to the light he has, God gives more light, and he ultimately gives them the light of the gospel. But some people, when they hear the gospel, they're not interested in the gospel, and they will stumble over the stumbling stone. You could say they will stumble over Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ today will be for you either a stepping stone into heaven or he will be a stumbling stone into hell. But you cannot remain neutral about Christ. You will either stand on him or you will fall under him, but there's no way you can just walk around him. All men and women, boys and girls, are going to face Jesus Christ someday. And what you do with him will determine in the end what God will do with you. And so we read, he's not done. Look at the rest of verse 33, just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now what is he quoting? Well, you will notice from the margin, he's quoting now Isaiah 28, 16. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, the word disappointed is a rather colorful word. And again, if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, you will see a little reference, and it will take you out into the margin. It will give you the literal Greek rendering, where you could literally translate it. It's a little awkward, a little wooden, but literally the Greek text says, he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, what is Paul quoting? What language was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew, primarily, right? A few chapters in Aramaic. Paul is quoting not the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament. He's quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Why? Because that's what most people read in his day. They lost their ability to speak Hebrew and the lingua franca, the, the language of the day, the international language of the world was Greek. And so he quotes from the Greek Bible. Let me read it to you out of the Hebrew Bible as Isaiah originally said it, because again, it adds a little more color to it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. Here it is. He who believes in it will not be in a hurry. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired both the Greek and the Hebrew. And so he really gives us divine commentary on it. The Lord will not be put to shame, the one who believes in him. He will not be disappointed. Or as Isaiah says, he will not be in a hurry. Now, what does that mean? I was in uh, Munich, Germany a few days ago, and Frieder, your, your home area, right, and your home country, and uh, Diedhelm, and I was sharing the gospel in the airport with a woman, and God just brought her to me, and it was a divine appointment, and 
you know, my voice is kind of loud. My wife often reminds me of that. She says, everybody in the restaurant can hear us. You know, I, I, okay, honey, I'll pull it down. And anyways, I, I saw her afterwards. She's kind of looking around. Like, is anybody hearing this? Anybody listening to me? And she was kind of in a hurry, I think, at that point to get away. She started getting uneasy. Sometimes I've been out to lunch with someone, and a non-Christian, I'll say, well, let me say the blessing. And they're looking around, is anybody watching us? You know, they're a little embarrassed. They're disappointed. They're put to shame. That's the typical reaction of unbelievers until they come to faith. And sometimes you have to put up with that and work through that until they come to the Savior. Now, sometimes people get mad at me when I invite people, being an invitational church at the end of the service, to come forward. Some who are already Christians to join publicly. Why? Because we feel like if they know Christ, they're not ashamed of Him. Some who are new Christians who come and confess Christ. And I've had people over the years say, well, I feel uncomfortable in that church, Pastor. Why? Well, you know, there's public invitation at the end, and I think religion is a private thing. Well, it is a private thing, and that only you can make the decision in your heart. But if you've made that private decision, it becomes very public. Jesus said, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Matthew says his soul, because the real you is your soul. Then he says, forever is ashamed of me and my words. The son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of his father, of the father and his holy angels. When you meet Jesus Christ, you're not disappointed. You're not in a hurry. You're not ashamed of him. He who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's what the Bible says. And so here's the point. If you don't get anything else out of the sermon, God has not abandoned the Jewish people. Their unbelief was prophesied both by Hosea, by Isaiah, but there is coming a day when they will believe. Now, how can we apply this to our lives this morning? Let me suggest three applications. Number one, you can pursue a right standing with God without ever finding a right standing with God. You can pursue it and never find it. There are a lot of people today who are pursuing a right standing with God, but they're not finding a right standing with God. We studied this morning about the Gentiles, about the non-Jews, about the hardcore pagans. And Paul asked in verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness attained righteousness? So here he describes a Gentile kind of like a man walking down the street. He's not looking for a treasure, but all of a sudden they're on the ground. Look at that ancient Roman coin. And he picks it up, a treasure. Look what I found. He wasn't looking for it. He just stumbled upon it. He attained it. And that's the word that is used in the Greek. It's a beautiful word picture. Here were Gentiles who were pagans. They weren't looking for salvation. And all of a sudden, they, they attain it. They see it. And they embrace it. And they say, it's mine. And they are so excited. But on the other hand, there's Israel, verse 31, the Jewish people. They're pursuing the law of righteousness because they're doing it their way and not God's way. And they never arrive at that law. So here's the irony. The Gentiles weren't even looking for salvation. They just find it and they take it. But here's an Israel in hot pursuit of salvation every hour, every day, every month, every year. And they never find it because they're doing it their way instead of God's way. And they stumble right over the Messiah because in their self-righteousness, he becomes a stumbling stone. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith but they did it by works. And that's what was so exciting to the Gentiles. So many of them, you didn't have to convince them that they were sinners. 
They knew they were sinners, and when they understood that they could be made right with God simply on the basis of faith, and that He would give them a new life and change them from the inside out, they said, I'll take it, I want it. But those self-righteous Jews, much like many self-righteous Gentiles today, who say, I'm okay, I'm religious, I've never robbed a bank or murdered anyone, God will accept me, I can be my own Savior, and they stumble right over the stumbling stone, and if they die in their unbelief, they stumble into hell. Man has a way of just taking truth and totally reversing it. The Lord Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. What do we do? We seek first those things, and we wonder why our lives are in such confusion. We reverse truth. Jesus says, believe and then be baptized. We now baptize little infants and later ask them to believe. We totally turn around what God says. Remember, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. So you can pursue righteousness. You can say, oh, I believe in God. It's not enough to believe in God. That won't get you into heaven. You must come through His Son. Secondly, I learned from this chapter of Scripture, while there is only a remnant of believing Jews, God has not abandoned Israel. While there's only a remnant, He has not abandoned them. We've seen that all the way through this chapter, that God made an unconditional covenant. We saw a man by the name of St. Augustine in the 4th century who said that the church had become the new Israel. Augustine, in the truest sense, was a staunch Calvinist. Now, I use that term loosely because I know John Calvin lived a thousand years after him. But he was the father of predestination. So when he came to Romans 9 and started with the premise that God was done with the Jewish people. And I read some of those quotes by him that are so embarrassing when you go into the Holocaust Museum in D.C. Or, or, or in Israel, and you see what he said about the Jewish people. Because he thought the Jews were in total unbelief that the church had replaced them, he misinterpreted this text. His view was later adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. Luther and Calvin came out of the Catholic Church. They put a different spin on it. The Catholic Church said, we're the new Israel. We are the one true church. We are now the chosen people. God is done with the Jew. And now the Roman Catholic Church are his true people. They still teach that, by the way. And Luther and Calvin said, no, the true people of God are those who are born again, but the church has replaced Israel. And so we saw a quotation that Calvin made in his day about the Jews in his day. He said, the Jews are rotten and unbending in their, un in their stiff neckedness, and they deserve that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without pity of anyone. How sad that Calvin would say that. How very sad. Listen, the unbelief of Israel did not surprise God Almighty. He wrote of it centuries before it ever happened. But he also sees a coming day when the Jewish people are going to believe and say that Jesus is Lord. Third and finally, I am reminded this morning that while you may feel like you are a part of a modern day remnant, remember God has not abandoned his church. The Bible prophesies, as we move into the end of the age, that the church will shrink. As we approach the rapture, the church will not get bigger and stronger and larger. The church will become the body of Christ, what I mean by the church, true believers, will become more and more of a remnant. 
Now, if you've not noticed our nation in our world, it is changing very, very fast. And not for good, but for evil. Timothy, speaking of the last of the last days, told us, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. That men will be lovers of self and lovers of money and boastful and arrogant and disobedient to their parents and ungrateful and unloving and irreconcilable. And then he'll go on to say, they will have a form of godliness, they'll be religious, but they'll deny the power of a new birth. That's our day. We have churches bigger than we've ever had in the history of America. And the people who attend them live just like the people of the world. We have the largest evangelical churches in the history of America with the least amount of influence. And believe me, God is not impressed. Jesus said as we move into the end of the age, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. And I pray and I often ask God for revival. But I know there is coming a point in human history when God will not bring a revival. But He will bring His Son back from heaven. And during those days, the true church is going to feel more and more like a remnant. And closed out. And not accepted. And not appreciated. And not embraced. But understand, God is on His throne. He is in control. We should not despair over Israel because God has promised Israel is going to come in faith. And we should not despair over His church because He is over it. The gates of hell will not prevail over it. He is going to be sovereign and someday He is going to come back and He's going to receive His bride to Himself. Now, whether he does that next week or in a hundred years, it doesn't change one bit my responsibility to go into the highways and the byways and to bring them in. And we should do everything in our power to have compassion and to snatch them from the flames of eternal retribution because that day is coming. And as the prophet said, and as Paul quotes, it will come suddenly and quickly and it will be forever sealed. Our Holy Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word that we have opened. Truly a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank You for the grace to help me to work through this passage when I would be tempted to skip it. Now, Father, I pray for someone who, like the Jews in Paul's day, are seeking a righteousness by works. Help them to see that their righteousness falls short of Your perfection and that you cannot allow anything into your heaven that will defile it. That we are all sinners who miss the mark. But thank you that the Lord Jesus in our stead on his cross took all of our unrighteousnesses upon himself and bore the full wrath that it deserves. You raised him from the dead, demonstrating he was able. And you said when we come in faith, when we trust what he has done, you credit to our unrighteousness his righteousness where we can be born from above and have a new life. Help someone today to come as a child to simply say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help us in these days, our Father, when the values we espouse and the things we believe and the things we preach are being heard by less and less people. Help us to understand that you said you would never leave us nor forsake us, that you would be with us even to the end of the age. Help us to be faithful 
knowing that you are sovereign and that you are in control. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. To listen again to today's message entitled Stumbling Over Truth, use the Search the Scriptures app available for smartphones and tablets at the iTunes Store and the Google Play Store. You can also visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you'd like a CD or DVD copy, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM49, entitled Stumbling Over Truth. Tomorrow we begin a message entitled Zealous but Rebellious. Join us then in our continued study of Romans as we search the Scriptures. Romans 8.1 